For the next three weeks in Crossroads, we will be in Mark chapter 7, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 7. This is a significant point of progress in the Gospel of Mark, where the opposition to Jesus comes into uh, even clearer focus, Mark chapter 7. And as we look back at this account of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, we're, we're well aware by this point in Mark, but especially here in chapter 7, of just how relevant the controversies that Jesus faced are to us today. Uh, for example, look at Mark 7. This morning we'll, we'll try to tackle verses 1 through 3. I'm sorry, 1 through 13, Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. This is the very word of the living God. Our topic to consider this month of December and in Mark chapter 7 is dangerous religion. I want to talk to you about dangerous religion. What's before us in this text is an example of that, of, of dangerous religion. And, and I'm sure that you've heard religion called dangerous before. There's been lots of criticism, of organized religion being of 
no benefit to human society. Atheists, an article in the Scientific American, uh, entire books written about the, the general harm that religion has done over the course of history towards society and its progress is a pretty common trope that you've heard those who have an axe to grind against religion say. In 2010, there was a a survey that uh, the Scientific American put out uh, every few years. And in that year, in exasperation, they dropped asking a question about human origins because they just never saw the needle move. There was always these stubborn religious people that would not acknowledge a scientific explanation for human origins, a naturalistic explanation. They hung on to their religion. They clung on to uh, what they considered uh, scientists to be myths about human origins. These people stood in the way of progress, and so they excluded that question from the survey in 2010, saying that there was no point in even asking anymore. The badness of religion is on display every time uh, there's some act of violence in the name of God, be that in Islam or any other religion, including uh, Christianity historically. A skeptic will bring up the Crusades to you and remind you of all the bad that has been done in the name of religion. Religion has been cast alongside of of so many different harmful experiments in human sociology. Uh, The gathering of a cult in a compound, uh, mass suicides in Jonestown, uh, the government breaking down the walls in Waco, uh, all of these examples around the world and throughout human history of, of dangerous religion. And here we are, all dressed up mostly, getting ready for Christmas, showing up at church. Maybe you're in a small group. All kinds of manifestations of religious devotion in your life. But they just keep saying religion is is dangerous. Now there's been people who have sought to answer that. Keith Ward wrote a book about it. Ian Proven wrote a book uh, called Seriously Dangerous Religion. It's, it's okay. Uh, and he says, in some, uh, religion has, both those books kind of come to the same conclusion. Uh, Proven's is about Christianity. Ward's is about lots of religion. And they both are saying that overall, it's good. Religion has improved society and helped people. Uh, and Proven's book speaks specifically about the advantages to Western civilization that that Christianity has built into this world and and the worldview that we benefit from. And so there are arguments that you can make against the atheist who might say all religions are dangerous or, or they're often dangerous. You could probably try to show them that there are certainly exceptions to the rule and and the religion that you're devoted to, Christianity, uh, you, you, I hope you know and think that that's an exception. But what I'd like you to see in Mark chapter 7 is that it's not just atheists 
and humanists and secularists that believe that religion is dangerous. Probably the greatest advocate for that standpoint that religion is dangerous is Jesus himself. When I was a kid, I had a red letter Bible. And some people are really against the red letter Bible. You know about the red letter Bible where you open it up in the Gospels and you see, you see the words of Jesus are red? You know? You know the red letter? Just nod if you know about it. If you don't know about it, shake your head and your fist like this. Um, I had a red letter Bible. So anything that Jesus said in the Gospels was in red letters. And I remember as a kid, you know, skipping over uh, the other letters to get to the good stuff that, that Jesus said. It was highlighted. It must be more significant. And that's usually how red letter Bibles are, are criticized um, because all the scriptures inspired, not just the words of Jesus. And I kind of miss my red letter Bible because it does highlight something. It shows you that of everything that Jesus said, most of what Jesus said was to and even against the religious people of his day. The most fastidious, the most religious people, the leading thinkers and theologians, those who controlled the systems of the synagogues, the the, the Jewish people, those people, the religious people, are the ones that Jesus is usually talking to. And when he does, the letters aren't just red, they're, they're spicy. I mean, he goes after them. And to think about Jesus' diatribes against religion is to recognize what's probably one of the most predominant teachings of Jesus. I mean, every story needs a villain, right? There's, there's the bad guys. And in the Gospels, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the, the religious ruling leaders, the Sanhedrin, those are the, the anti-heroes. Those are the bad guys. Those are the guys who, who bring out the most significant statements of Jesus against human religion. And so what we find in Mark chapter 7, beginning in this first section and continuing all the way through the story of the Syrophoenician woman that Jesus calls a dog, is an indictment of human religion. Jesus sees religion as dangerous, seriously dangerous, even devastating to your eternal soul. Jesus goes toe-to-toe against religious people. It is the religious people who oppose Jesus the strongest. It's the religious people, the traditionalists, who conspire against Jesus with the governing powers of the day to crucify him. And Jesus' concern for the compassion of God to be displayed in the lives of true worshipers, his predominant concern is that these religious leaders, that their human man-made religion will get in the way of people actually knowing God. And the reason I want to take it in in three parts, Mark 7, to 
take these next three Sundays and, and look carefully at that, is because the danger that Jesus faced from the most fastidious and religious people of his day is the same kind of danger that Christians face today in upholding our traditions, our preferences, and our legalistic tendencies. Religion is still dangerous today. Some of you have yet to give your life to Jesus because you have been so brainwashed by human religion in the name of Christianity. Some of you have grown up at this church and you have yet to encounter genuine saving faith, the real experience of God's spirit making you new because you've learned a lot about religion, but you've never learned about grace. And though the Pharisees today don't have you know, boxes of scripture on their head and ornate outfits and complicated religious systems, the way they indict worshipers, the way they lay heavy demands on worshipers, the way that they get between worshipers and God to keep them away from each other for the sake of their own understanding of holiness and fastidiousness and proper practice and prudency is just like the enemies of Jesus that required his strongest indictment. So let's learn together about dangerous religion. Dangerous religion. Verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples. Right there we meet again for the third, fourth time in the Gospel of Mark, the Pharisees. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 16, it's where we encountered them uh, at first. It said when Jesus was calling the tax collector Matthew or Levi, it said, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him collect, eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's there. I introduced you for the first time to the Pharisees. You met them again in verse 24 of that same chapter. It said, the Pharisees said to Jesus after his disciples took some heads of grain from the grain field, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Our third encounter with these uh, religious, fastidious, uh, orthodox teachers was in chapter 3, verse 6. It said, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, those are the, the governors of Palestine, how they might kill Jesus. And so the plot is already afoot by the time we get to Mark chapter 7. The characters have already been introduced to us. And the people who first read Mark's gospel would have known about the Pharisees because they were around a long time after Jesus and a long time before Jesus. For centuries, actually, the Hasidim, the, the holy separated ones, that's what the word Pharisee means, were a sect of Judaism that had grown more and more powerful because they had codified Jewish religion into lots and lots of observable commandments. They had taken the Old Testament and extracted everything that they could make into an imperative, a command. And it wasn't just the 10 that you know about. Uh, Thou shalt have no other gods, honor your 
your mother and your father, thou shalt not murder, just to give you a sampling of the, the famous Ten Commandments. It was 600 plus commands that they'd extracted from the Old Testament, that they had memorized and that they had decided that the key to bringing back Messiah the key to bringing about God's plan, to bringing about the ushering in of God's kingdom, to get rid of Roman rule, is fastidiousness to God's law. The reason the people of God had drifted from God's ways is unfaithfulness to God. And so they had come to believe that by perfect devotion to the commandments in the Old Testament, in their Bibles, they could bring about the kingdom of God. And they had begun to codify these things. A century after Jesus' ministry, after his death and resurrection, they would have put these into writing. And Jews today, Orthodox Jews today, still read the writings of the prominent Pharisees and those who followed them, the rabbis from the schools of the Pharisees who were prominent in Jesus' day and still hold to many of the same teachings. These are the Pharisees. They are the separated ones. And you have to understand this. They believed the scriptures. They believed in God. They sought to be obedient to God. And they were certainly and increasingly concerned that everyone else would be obedient to God. And what they do in verse 1, in a very physical way, is almost a metaphor of what they were doing in their man-made religion as they tinkered with the Scripture and as they codified it and as they took all those commandments and then turned them into lots and lots of practical manifestations, some of which are featured in this text, but ones that you would know about uh, and that we've talked about before are, are rules about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was relatively simple in the Old Testament. It was a day of rest from labor, a day for worship. Well, that didn't go far enough for the Pharisees. They wanted to be more specific. And so they said you couldn't light a fire, you couldn't carry a stick, you couldn't uh, get your ox out of a ditch. They, they had all these rules that they had come up with that they added on to Scripture. And what they had done is what is being shown in verse 1. They were coming between man and God and adding extra stuff, adding burdens, adding religiosity, adding commandments, adding observations, adding uh, practical preferences, ways that they felt these laws needed to be enforced. And so the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. And as they surrounded him, do you see what they're doing? They've come from Jerusalem. That's a place of Jesus' destiny. His eventual death will occur in Jerusalem. And they come down there, not because they're wondering what's going on with Jesus. They already decided in chapter 3, they've plotted to kill him. They're waiting for their opportunity. What they're doing in this passage is they're getting between Jesus and the crowds. They're trying to choke out his message. They're trying to get in the way between man and God. And that's what false religion, that's what bad religion always does. 
in the name of getting you to God, it stands between you and God. And in the name of showing you things that you can do to get to God, it stacks up bricks. Brick after brick of obstacle and barrier. Brick after brick of commandment and fastidious decree that would keep these people from being close to Jesus. Their only hope was the words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth. And these Pharisees wanted to choke those words out. And so they gather around Jesus with the intent to do much harm, to separate him from the people who are following him in these massive crowds. And they point out what they see to be violations and inconsistencies of their standards that they had been putting on the crowds, the people, the devoted Jews for a long time. These were sacrosanct, even though they were not scriptural. They were universally by these religious leaders agreed upon, but they were not from the Bible. And so they see Jesus's disciples doing something that they would never be caught doing, eating with hands unclean. Now I'm so grateful for the gospel of Mark because it was written for goyim like you and me. Norwegian, Syrian, New Mexicans, Asian dudes, non-Jewish people. That's y'all and me, except for a couple Goldbergs in the crowd. What up? So, because this is a largely Gentile audience, we don't have maybe a deep understanding of, of Second Temple Judaism, probably. Well, neither did Mark's readers. It's why verse 3 has a big fat parenthetical statement. I mean, Mark wouldn't need to say verse 3. He wouldn't need to tell you what, uh, what Corban is in verse 11, that is a gift devoted to God, if you were a Jew. Jews knew all this stuff. They lived and breathed this stuff. But Mark is writing for a Gentile audience. And the first Christians who heard this gospel account were involved in what we've been hearing Pastor J-Mac talk about the last few weeks. How does it work? How are Jews and Gentiles supposed to get along in the church? How are they supposed to be one body if the mystery is the unity of all the people of God under Christ, then how is that going to work? Because Gentiles don't do any of the stuff that we're supposed to do. You see, Mark is actually addressing that issue for his first readers by exposing the nature of unbiblical, superfluous human religion. He's helping the church understand where their unity needs to come from. So that's just to connect it if you went to church this morning. Last few weeks. Unclean. Unwashed. Oh, man, to preach this in the age of the Rona, it's almost, it's an obstacle even greater than our Gentileness. And I'm sympathetic. If you know me, you know I like hand sanitizer. Me gusta mucho. I use it all the time. It's something my wife taught me before she would let me hold her hand, you know? I mean, it was just part of it. So... 
I am what the natives call a bit of a germaphobe. It's cleanliness. I like it. I like to wash my hands. Early in the Rona, when the Who released the video on how to wash your hands, I watched it multiple times. I liked the video. Do you know how you're supposed to wash your hands with this thing? You know about this part? I love that. Have you seen that video? It's good. Get your fingernails clean, and then you do this with the fingers. Each one. It's very clean. I like it. I'm, I'm not crazy. I don't, I'm not like Howie Mandel, fist bumps only. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe in the efficacy of certain hygienic techniques, et cetera, et cetera. But for us to be in the age we're in and to hear about unwashed hands is, is automatically difficult. And so you need to listen carefully to what Mark says in verse 3. Otherwise, you're going to be thinking about the Omicron. And that's not me that's bringing it up. It's, it's, it's verse 3. It's talking about unclean and unwashed hands, and, and everybody gets all Fauci right now. So I'm, I'm not trying to make any statements about the current state of events, which I stand in opposition to all current state of events. But I will tell you this. You cannot, when you read your Bible, you cannot put modern thinking in the way of your understanding of the text. This is how you interpret scripture. You have to take it on its own terms, in its own context. And so when we hear unwashed hands, we bring in all kinds of stuff, right? We think about bacteria, and we think about the Rona, and we think about your fingernails, and we think about surgical scrubs, and wash up to the elbow, and we think about Purell, and 10,000 other things. That is nowhere in the mind of anyone involved in this, in this scene. This isn't about hygiene. This is about holiness and what they thought holiness entailed. What's being described here in the parenthetical statement is a hand-washing ritual, okay? It's a ritual, In fact, knowing what I know about the abundance of clean running water and hand soap and and friction and, and whatnot, what the Pharisees were doing was actually not hygienic. It was some bowl of stagnant water that they were doing a thing with their hands to. And you can search through the, the Mishnah, you can look through Jewish writings, and you know what you can find about the details of this? Nothing. <laughs> and I would have really liked those details. I'm interested. So I'm going to assume it's gross and actually not that hygienic because welcome to the ancient world. Welcome to AD 25 or whatever, 27. I mean, this is the dirtiest time in human history next to the Middle Ages. So we have to take all our germaphobe, cleanliness, Fauciisms, and step on back, whether he's your hero or he's the worst villain in the world. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about rituals, okay? Religious rituals involving a symbolic washing of hands and vessels and instruments. That's what he's talking about. Look at what verse 3 says. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. 
And so again, to summarize here, this has nothing to do with washing your hands. It has everything to do with a particular religious ritual the Jews in Jesus' day observed because, verse 3, of the tradition of the elders. This was not something in the Bible. The only place you can find this in the Old Testament is there's a regulation for priests to ritually cleanse their hands before they offer a sacrifice. It's only one place in the whole Old Testament, and it's for priests. So there was a lot of inference and extrapolation going on as they built out human tradition on this one little concept. If it's even based on this one little concept, I'm just guessing that that's where it came from. Because for the priest to do that on Yom Kippur is one thing. For them to do it every time they go to the market and every time they gather and it for to be such a public and observable thing and then to extend it to other things, cups and pitchers and kettles. Again, this isn't saying to scrape the eggs off the pan. Everybody wants to scrape the eggs off the pan except for your gross roommate. Right? You don't have a gross roommate? I had In college, all I had was gross roommates. And they would not scrape the pan or anything else. (laughs) What's happening here is those bricks in the wall of human religion are being built and built and built. And so cups get a brick and pitchers get a brick and kettles get a brick. And the certain way of sprinkling or or cleansing, or pouring, or or whatever it was, this ritual was all bricks that they had built to show one another and to prove to God that they were better than everybody else, that they had improved on and held fast to the scriptures by way of the tradition of the elders. And they push it in Jesus' face in verse 5. The Pharisees and teachers, likely the scribes or the theologians, the copyists of the scriptures of the law said, ask Jesus, verse 5, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean or impure hands? The indictment has been leveled. Not a hygienic one. One far more serious than that. It's an indictment that these men who follow Jesus are unholy men, ungodly men, unacceptable men. They don't follow the rules and the practices. They don't dress like they're supposed to dress. They don't do like they're supposed to do. The Pharisees have observed Jesus. They've gotten the way of Jesus in the crowds. They've been scrutinizing him and watching him and they see what his disciples have done, and it turns out that a few of those disciples didn't do the traditional hand-washing ritual thing, and they say, gotcha, because they're fastidious, because they're religious, because they know exactly what you should do to make yourself right with God. And so they tell Jesus, also known as God, that his followers aren't living up to the standard that they have set as the religious leaders of the day. 
as the chief interpreters of the day, as the traditionalists of the day. And Jesus isn't going to have it. And here is Jesus, meek, mild, gentle, so gentle, and lowly of heart. Jesus who scooped up Matthew when nobody would touch Matthew. Jesus who put his hands on every leprous sore and Jesus who, who moved through crowds unconcerned about being defiled because of his perfect holiness. Jesus who will speak so gently to sinners looks at the bad religionists of his day and quotes the Bible to them. Isaiah, you know him, big old prophecy right here. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, hypocrites. That's red letter. That is muy picante. That's Szechuan. That is spicy. Isaiah was right when he foretold, when he prophesied about you. Imagine those Pharisees puffing it out. Yeah, he did. Hypocrites. When he wrote. And from his mind, he uncurls the scroll. And he finds, I don't know what they called it back then, but right now we call it Isaiah 29, verse 13. And he quotes it verbatim. These people, the religious people, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus finds Scripture to be perfect and timely and appropriate, and he pinpoints exactly the reference that applies to these false teachers, these human religionists, these bad hypocrites, and he says that their religion is dangerous and defunct. In fact, Jesus is going to dismantle it. It had become so far gone from the pure religion that God, Yahweh, the covenant God of the Old Testament, had entrusted to his people. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to be people in covenant with God. They were the caretakers of the word of God, of the commandments of God. They were to be a people who shone like light, who were flavored like salt. It was supposed to be that the Queen of Sheba and every other Gentile would come to them to find out what it meant to know God. That was what God entrusted to them. And what they did 
did to it what their chief leaders, their most religious and fastidious hypocrites did was they they contorted it and they twisted it and they ruined it and they made it human rather than divine. And so Jesus finds three problems with these leaders. Three problems that religious people still face today. Three problems that some of you need to confront in your own lives because you have been exposed to a religion, but you still don't know the grace of God. Number one, they were hypocrites. Hypocrites. Verse six, Jesus smacks them with that word. And it's a word they understood. In their day, it was like calling somebody a fake, a phony, an actor. That's what the word means, hypocrite. It's an actor mask. It's someone who's one thing on the outside and something else on the inside. And it never holds up. There's a disparity between lips and hearts. You see, they have a an obvious devotion to God, but because they're hypocrites, it's fake. You see, religious people are so concerned about what the outside looks like that they misunderstand that anything external, your words, your appearance, your actions of compassion or malice, everything that you do and display is actually just a monitor of your heart. You know what I mean by monitor? Like you got one. You know, your laptop's too small and you put it up on the big monitor. Maybe you airplay it onto the screen and it shows what's happening on the little screen. Or maybe you're, we can go medical again. The monitor is like bloop, 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 bloop. Right? That's like a heart monitor. And, and that little screen, don't worry, I brought you back. <laughs> that little monitor that is on the screen. So if I took that monitor and I smashed it, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Clear? It's that little, fix that little fella. It doesn't change anything. Like I smash your heart monitor. The heart monitor is just showing something about your BPMs and whatnot, right? That's what the monitors do. It's just showing. That's not making your heart beat. It's showing your heart beat. You see, hypocrites don't understand that they put this shell, this mask, this false front on in certain circumstances, to act a certain way, like Sundays or around your friends who are Christians or maybe around your parents or someone that you respect that's you know, going to care about that kind of a thing. And you, you put up a certain facade, a mask, a, a, a monitor, and you try to display on that something that you think other people want to see. 
And the Pharisees were experts at this. Their masks were thick. Their masks were prominent. Their lips had a lot of fancy religious stuff to say. Their hearts were rotten. Their devotion to God was obvious, but it was fake. And that's the nature of hypocrisy. Whenever you try to keep the monitor, the outside, the mask a certain way that is not reflective of who you really are, you'll fail and it'll come out. Your lies will get exposed. Your tongue will slip. Your lusts will show through. Religion is dangerous because it breeds hypocrites. And hypocrites have an ever-thinning shell, an outside appearance, a skin that isn't really who they are. And the more they live in that fake skin, that shell, the thinner it wears. And it always bursts. And then the outside shows exactly who they are. But hypocrites fool people. I mean, these people were held in the highest regard by the Jews of their day. If you asked a common Jewish person who who is the godliest person you know, they'd point at one of these Pharisees. But the shell wasn't broken yet. But here's the thing about hypocrisy. One... You can't sustain it. It's exhausting. And two, you may fool your mama, but God sees right through it. He sees right through it. That's why these these Pharisees say, hand washing, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus says, Isaiah the prophet prophesied about you. Hypocrites. Because the omniscient eye of Jesus sees exactly who these guys are. And they're phonies. Feigned devotion to God. Lips that do not reflect what their hearts truly are. Actors in masks and hypocrites. Second mark of bad religionists is that their heart is far from God. If you're a religious person who have not encountered the grace of God, I can tell you what your heart really is. Your heart is far from God. That's what Jesus says in verse 6. Their lips say all kinds of prayers and songs of praise. They would have known the Psalms. They would have read the Scriptures. They would have spoken in a certain way. But something inside is different. There's a distance in the heart. The heart being the the seat of affections. the, The summary of all that you are. Your true self. If you are a religious person, you're a hypocrite. And second, your heart is far from God because what your concern is isn't God. It's what people are hearing you say about God. You are not in your heart who you truly are, set on God, in love with God concerned with God, consumed with God, wanting to honor God, you instead are set on self. And that's why you think about yourself so much and how you look and what you get and what you want. 
These Pharisees feigned devotion to God. Their hearts were hidden in their chests. Their lips spoke all kinds of beautiful religious words, but their hearts were in actuality and reality far from God. Religious people are dangerous because they're fakes, they're hypocrites. And second, their heart doesn't seek to know God. It only cares for self. There's no real love for God. And there's no real compassion for others. This is the repeated indictment that you've heard in Hosea, in Sunday nights, in any of the prophets. They constantly call the people to act in acts of devotion and compassion for their fellow man because they have become self-consumed and their lack of love for God has shown itself in their failure to care about their fellow man. Exploitation is on their heart instead of worship. The third mark of a religious hypocrite, of a, of a bad religionist, is not just hypocrisy in a heart that's far from God, but third, it's a devotion to tradition. A devotion to tradition. You see it in verse 7, they worship me in vain, their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then in verse 8, you have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you've a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Tradition. Fiddler on the Roof has a song about it. Tradition. You like it? You heard it? La Cueva High School is where I saw the first La Cueva, the cave. Uh, La Cueva High School is where Marilee graduated for went to his school. Um, Neil Patrick Harris played uh, Tevia. He's from Albuquerque. Albuquerque's kind of a big deal. And he, there's that song, Tradition. So valuable to so many people, the way that their ancestors have done a thing. As we enter into Christmas time, we, we become familiar with traditions. We like to put up a tree, hang stockings, Chug the nog, whatever it is, it is your, your people's thing. The Jewish people had tradition that wasn't seasonal, it was constant. All their life was marked by tradition, some of them given to them by God himself, like the Passover meal. But so many amendments and clauses, and it's sort of like bureaucracy. It never self-prunes. It always just expands, and that's what had happened in Judaism by Jesus' day. The traditions had taken over like a vine that covers over the, the wall of your house. It just gets everywhere. That's what tradition had done to Scripture. It had covered it up and, and hidden it and taken over for it. And so Jesus says they've elevated man's word over God's word. This is the traditional uh, distinction between Protestants and Catholics, uh, usually summarized in the idea of uh, tradition over Scripture. This is before the time of the Reformation, though. This is the time of Jesus indicting the religionists for holding tradition in too high of regard and actually putting it in place of usurping the Word of God. 
You see, love was a fulfillment of the law. So it wasn't that they were choosing love over law. It was that they were choosing man-made, man-centered, man-ideaed concepts over what God had actually said in the Scripture. It's more concern for self. You see, a Pharisee would have been able to pass your systematic theology test. He would have had fastidious orthodox doctrine. But it's the things he added onto it in his life and in his requirements for others to be acceptable to God that made him orthodox but lost. And so false religion is dangerous because it promotes hypocrisy, it makes your heart far from God, and it elevates tradition over Scripture. And Jesus gives a perfect example. Verse 9. How do they set aside commandments to observe their own traditions? Well, they indicted him for something called hand washing. Couldn't find it in the Bible, and so he's going to flip it and indict them for something that is in the Bible. A super famous commandment that they all would have known, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. That's how you remember it's the fifth commandment. And Jesus cites it. And the corollary about a a child in full rebellion against his parents and the capital punishment associated with it in the Old Testament. Heavy-duty stuff. Serious. God is serious about honoring parents. But the Pharisees had taken this most basic commandment that is like a building block of human society, the relationship between a a family, how society is is furthered in God's plan. Uh, Mom and dad have kids, and then they grow up and have kids, and, and that order of the family is preserved by this respect and, and honor that's built into the family, in the honor of parents. And the Pharisees have taken something more basic, more elemental, more essential, and you know what they found? A loophole. A loophole. Like the guy who's trying to kind of fudge on his taxes a little bit and says, well, actually, uh, Mark, this is, I don't know anything about taxes. It's like when I was talking about medical stuff earlier with the heart monitor, and you guys are like, what are you talking about? Similar, my tax doctrines, all messed up. But I do know there's such a thing as a loophole. I just wouldn't know how to find them. But I know who does. Mark Zakevich will find loophole. The Pharisees found loophole in the fifth commandment. You see, a a time in your life, I talk to college students about this a lot, is coming when the honoring your parents changes from the infantile obedience to a respectful adult relationship. And in time, someday you will have the obligation of getting your parents to obey you. This is what it looks like. Dad, I know. I know you miss mom. But you, you can't be on your own anymore. You've got to come live with us because you don't remember what day of the week it is or whatever. I mean, it's, a, it's like a reality that every family faces. When parents grow old and they need to be cared for, it falls upon their children to care for them. And it's a bit of a... 
a repayment, isn't it? I mean, your, your mother and your father took care of you all throughout your childhood. And so a time will come when you will take care of them. I mean, that's obvious. You barely need the fifth commandment for that. And that's a kind of honoring. But the Pharisees found a loophole for it. You see, taking care of elderly parents or parents who fell into hard times uh, was expensive. And as we see later on, the Pharisees not only loved to sound religious, they loved money a lot. And they came up with this concept of Corban, devotion to God, is what Mark explains it as. That they would say, you know, they're going into the ministry. These are mostly middle-class guys, but successful guys, Pharisees were, uh, significant places in society. They owned businesses, things like that. And, and one of the ways they protected their assets is they would say, My, everything now that I'm a Pharisee going into the service of Yahweh is Colbin. It's devoted to God. And so there's an accident back home and your parents need help. And the Pharisee would say, I'm so sorry, Mama. It's Colbin. I can't touch it. It's God's. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's unbiblical. It's hypocritical. It's lacking compassion. And it's certainly not in the Bible. It's, it's, It's a traditional thing that they had come up with. And they were well known for it because Jesus is able to just flip it on them as an indictment. And he says, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban. That's a diff devoted to God, verse 12. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and you do many things like that. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I, I didn't even know about Corbin. I've never done any Corbin kind of stuff. But any time you elevate human religion, human preferences, human rules, human regulations, human observances over Scripture, any time your Christianity starts to wear its heavy cultural facade instead of its biblical radical nature, you have become just like these Pharisees who say Corban. You do many things like that. So I have to ask you, are you a hypocrite? Is your heart far from God? And has tradition become your religion? Or do you understand grace? It's not that those who understand grace think less of holiness. It's that they understand what it truly is, that it's not first a matter of externals, but it's a matter of the heart. And to encounter God's grace, his favor, his kindness undeserved, is the heart of divine religion, which is always good and never evil, and always for the benefit of man and the glory of God. And you can't understand it if you don't get this distinction between what's real on the inside and what's fake on the outside. If you're a hypocrite, you have a responsibility to renounce bad religion and to embrace Jesus who operates on the basis of Scripture 
And the message of Scripture is that of unfathomable grace. Not rules to accrue favor with God, but favor given by God to undeserving sinners. We sang it earlier, didn't we? No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. O oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Those are the words that you'll never find on the lips of a religionist. But only on the lips of someone who's experienced that reality in their heart. Are you a sinner? Then you need the grace of God. And the only place you'll find it is in Jesus. And so now Jesus wants to show you what makes you sinful. And it's not something that you take in. It's something that comes out, which is what he talks about in the next section. Father, thank you for your grace. Help us to turn from self and religiosity and to embrace a gospel of grace. We are sinners through and through. We need mercy. You desire us to be merciful. You desire to show us mercy. You want our hearts to be near to you. You want our lives to be consistent, not hypocritical. And you've given us your word that we might hold fast to it, not that we might add to it. And Father, in in Jesus, we see your word perfect and clear. We see love fulfill law. We see self die and lessen. We see compassion and love and true devotion to God. Work that in us, God, by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.